Hello, Majora. Hello? Hello? Hi, do you hear me? Oh, I can. Oh, good. Hi, this is Krista Tippett. Hey, how, oh my gosh, how are you doing? <laughs> trying to uh, get myself situated here. Okay. It's really nice to hear your voice. I've been reading you and seeing your picture, and <laughs> now I've got you on the other end of the line. Oh, this is so bizarre. Like, how often have I heard you? So this is very exciting. Oh, that's Actually, great. You know what? Go ahead. I'm just going to give you a quick direction. Okay, hold on a second, Krista. I'm okay. getting some direction okay. here. Okay, okay. So you don't need to, like, lean into this. I'm putting it a little to the side okay. so you can speak straight and it'll avoid popping. Oh, okay. So where you were is good, but don't. Like, sometimes people tend to... Lean yeah, toward it. it. Okay, cool. I can adjust your voice or her voice. You just tell me once we get... Okay, cool. Actually, you know what? I'm going to take my earrings off. Hold on one second. So I'm going to take the, the, the headset off. One second. Whoops, shoot, I just moved everything. Sorry about that. Forgot. Yeah, I, I moved it. Uh-oh, whose cell phone is that? <laughs> oh, it's the... <laughs> okay. Hello? Hi. Oh, there you go. You're back. Are you at WNYC? No, we were at the, the Argot Network. Oh, I don't know. It's in Chelsea. Okay. And do you listen to the show on WNYC Saturday mornings? Yeah. Or? Great. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, when you when when, when Gary Mathai was on, oh. I was like, oh my God. Wasn't that wow. amazing? She's so cool. Yeah. Just the coolest. Just it, the coolest ever. Yeah. Oh, I, I got a chance to meet her. I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. yeah, I did too. I was I was with her, and I was so glad. I'm often not with people, but just as a present, she's amazing, isn't she? Wow! Like in this. Oh, you actually did the the interview there. Yeah, she was in town. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I ran into her at um uh, and I, when I spoke at the Clinton Global Initiative, and she did too, and. She just so happened to sit in front of me at one of the bigger plenary sessions, mm-hmm. and I was just like, "Oh my god! Like, no matter what, I have to make sure that I get a chance to like shake her hand or yeah. something." And she was so unbelievably warm. Talk, yeah, exactly. She's got such a presence. Yeah. Wow. Well, and she's been through a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, her story—it's one of these stories that can sound so heartwarming, but actually, mm-hmm. it's you know, she's fought huge battles. I suppose, I know, like you. It's I mean, it, she's wrested that success and that. Yep. Inspiration out of a lot of difficulty and darkness. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, she's an, sort of an inspiration. Yeah. Well, okay, that's a good place for us to start. Mitch, can we start? Okay. All right. Because, like a li- like her a little bit, um, uh, I mean, I think today what I want to do with you really is just talk through your story and, you know, talk about what it all means as we do that. But I, I really just want you to tell your story and... Um, you know, talk about the specific projects you're working on and what what's happening there in the South Bronx. And um, but I I always start my interviews, whoever I'm talking to, whatever we're talking about, and whether they're religious or not, or how they're religious, to, to just ask something about their you know the spiritual background of their life. And a little bit like mm-hmm. Wangari Matai, nobody ever focuses on that when they write about her. So there was very little right. out there. And same thing with you. I've I've you know I've had dozens of articles in front of me, but I haven't seen anybody ask you that question. And I'm so I'm curious. You know, you're right. <laughs> and it is very much, I mean, I'm definitely not a religious person at all. Mm-hmm. But having lived through, you know, what was essentially the spiritual bankruptcy, 
you know, of my own community, I see what it's what how investing in it in its own spirituality again is is really the, at the root of what I do. Hmm. Um, you know, and I feel. You know, ask me again. I'm sorry. The question. Well, tell me. You know, was there was there any was there a religious uh, practice or tradition in your childhood that you grew up with? Grew up with in the South Bronx. I mean, I know, like everywhere in the world, there there are there are vibrant religious communities there. Yeah, I grew up. You know, with the, with parents. You know, from the South. You know, so there was definitely. You know, there were Christian. You know, Southern Baptists. Yeah. You know, which we brought up with us, but there was also like many, many black communities, um, which is the kind of thing that no one really talks about. You know, there was also this this connection. You know, to a spirit world that was right there with you. Right. You know, like we would talk. My mother, um, you know, would talk about things like you know having a sight. Yeah, you know, which really comes simply, from African spirituality. Yes, yeah. exactly. And like I, you know, in my, you know, more recent past, you know, have become very, very familiar with, um, you know, West African traditions mm. and what that means to be connected to the land. But I also saw that, you know, with my parents as well, because they were both raised on farms. You know, they both like lived in these areas, you know, all of their formative years. And there was this general, um, you know, feeling and connection, you know, to a place that, to your to where you were right then and there, but also understand that you were a part of a bigger history, and that that in and of itself helped inform what happened in the future. Mm. You know, so whether it was slavery, you know, whether it was you know the Jim Crow era and how you know the land was often used against you know the people that were there, and we were either taken from it, um, you know, back before you know during the Middle Passage, or and then coming here and then having to actually work the land and having a deep respect for it, um, and then you know owning a little piece of land. You know, what that really meant, mm. you know, in terms of how you developed, you know, how you looked at yourself in the in the larger world was really important, you know, to even to me growing up. And mm. I didn't really make any of those real connections <laughs> at the time, but I certainly do now. Right. Okay, so you, you grew up in the South Bronx and then you went to Wesleyan and you studied uh, cinema studies, right? I mean, wasn't yeah. that a huge <laughs> leap um, for you to go to Wesleyan? Oh, it was... It was a huge leap, but it was the only one that I thought I would take. I mean, I grew up, you know, when the South Bronx in and of itself was burning. You know, this was a time of, you know, not just spiritual, you know, divestment, but actual, you know, financial, you know, Mm -hmm. divestment. And you couldn't build in this community or if you even tried to, there was no funding to help you do it because banks had abandoned this area. And, uh, you know, so lots of landlords were torching their buildings in order to collect insurance money. And so I grew up, you know, seeing these buildings burn around me. Um, You know, whole families would have to leave. You know, people that I knew one day and had known all of my life would just be gone the next because the building they lived in burned down. And uh, it was really difficult. And so during that time, you know, I'm not exactly sure where I learned it, but I'm pretty sure it was just like society in general, like, if you had, you know, any kind of, of intellectual you know, acumen, then your job, you know, your duty to yourself was to leave hmm. an area like the South Bronx as soon as you could. So it didn't even occur to me to apply to schools within New York City. And so Wesleyan was close enough, you know, it was in Middletown, Connecticut. And I, I got in and left and thought I'd never look back. Hmm. So I wonder... You know, you never you, you never trained as an environmentalist, did you? You never had no. any formal training to do what you do now. But if you look back now in your childhood or, or at Wesleyan 
<clears throat> or at you know your education after you left the South Bronx, do you find seeds um, for what you do now, kind of in the back of your mind? Maybe experiences you didn't pay attention to that formed absolutely, you? absolutely. I think growing up as poor as we did. Um, you know, the, everything was precious. You had to reuse everything. Like, I remember <laughs> my right. mother, you know, we had the smallest amount of garbage that went out you know, <laughs> on garbage <laughs> days because, you know, everything that was reused was was reused. And, no. and I remember this, you know, really distinctly that everything had a second or third purpose, you know, from like, you know, little uh, tomato paste cans, you know, which we would use to curl our hair. You know? And you had so, no idea that several <laughs> decades later that would be fashionable. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it was just hysterical. I was like, oh, mommy, you're just, she was amazing. Just amazing. And, uh, (laughs) and so just the idea that everything is a resource, you know, and that everything has value even beyond its original use was something that was really ingrained to me. Like I remember one of my first jobs, um, uh, it was actually for HBO uh, after college and um, they had the first recycling program you know, that I'd seen, like this was before New York City had theirs. Right. And I would take my junk mail, you know, rip off the label so they wouldn't know it came from like my personal, you know, home and, um, you know, put it in their recycling bin because I was like, gosh, there's so much paper. Why am I throwing this away? All right, all right. You know, so there you go. Hmm. And, and what about, I mean, I also wonder about, you You, stu- you studied art, um, you were an artist and you, mm-hmm. I wonder if also just, I suppose that in doing that, doing that intentionally, Mm, you be, you become attentive to beauty in a different way. I mean, was that something that you took back home with you when you ended up back in the South Bronx? Yes, I I think originally look I looked at the arts as a way to kind of insulate myself against you know the the horrible things that I had to see you right. know, in my daily life when I was young. Kind of find but, beauty out there. Yes, uh-huh. exactly. So it was a it was a way to become somebody else or see things in a different way. And but I do think that it really did help support you know the work that I do right now because it helps me see things again in a way that I didn't before. So when I looked, you know, at our waterfront you know, I didn't necessarily see only the industry that was there. I didn't only see, you know, some of the garbage that was floating in the river. I saw possibilities. Hmm. I was like, this could become, you know, a, this place could be transformed. And that is, I think, what inspires me. Because, no, I don't have the background. And sometimes it bothers me that I don't. But for the most part, it's just like, you know, most people are not going to go to school for environmental you know, studies or right. anything like that. But they do have a sensual understanding of what is true and what is beautiful and what is going to help make their lives whole. And All right. Uh-huh. No, keep going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, if mm-hmm. you think about it, I mean, just when you said that, most people are not going to go study environmentalism. It's, it, it occurs to me that one day, probably not too far in the future, it will seem ridiculous that we should ever have thought that this should be something that experts know about. I mean, because really we're talking about the stuff of our daily lives, aren't we? Absolutely. And that is something, you know, my parents were com- like completely uneducated. I mean, they, I think if they went up to the sixth grade, it was a lot, you know, but they understood, you know, you, whether you, as you build your home, as you build your life around you, as you build, you know, look outside of your home, you know, you're building a community and it should be something, you know, that you want, you know, to see more of right. something that you want to respect and love. And, um, 
know, I do remember that very clearly, like my family being incredibly house proud. And um, you know, I might not have appreciated their taste <laughs> in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, this, you know, everything was, was very much about like how what you put out to the world. And I think for poor communities, you know, in particular, um, we're not expected to put anything out in the world that's beautiful for people to see. Like we're not even expected to think of ourselves that way. And, you know, and that has as much to do with the way I, I view, you know, my community and the work that I do as, as a part of it. Um, because all we're trying to do is help folks understand that no matter, regardless of how poor you are, you know, regardless of what color you are, that you, it, you have inherent beauty, you know, within you and that you should be able to look outside of yourself and see that too. Hmm. And that our you know, administrations, our regulators, our you know, legislators, you know, really help to need to support that, especially when it's politically expedient to do the to go the other way. So, so start telling me the story of how you became an environmentalist. I mean, as I understand it, you you'd been away, you'd gotten an MFA, mm-hmm. you came back, and you started working in an arts organization in the mm-hmm. neighborhood. And then what mm-hmm. happened <laughs> to change your direction? You know, I moved back home because I had to. I was broke and <laughs> started grad school. And um, so went to this arts organization because I, on some level, definitely wanted to give back. I was like, I'm here, so I should be doing something and only wanted to do arts-related community development. But got there and realized that those funny smells that I smelled in the neighborhood for a really long time were actually, you know, as it was all these industries that were there. And then we discovered that the city and the state were planning on building a waste facility on the waterfront that would have handled about 40% of the city's commercial waste, in addition to all that we already handle. Mm -hmm. And was this when they they were redirecting the Fresh Kills landfill was shut down? And that got lots of publicity as a great move. And yep. then what you found out is that they were that I mean it still had to go somewhere all that yes, waste and it was exactly. going to the South Bronx exactly and the move to to close Fresh Kills was a good one it never should have been opened in the first place it right. was never handled the way it should have been and that wasn't our problem our problem with it was you know equitably distrib- distrib- that equitably distributing um, those kinds of uh, you know, burdens essentially around right. the city, and and poor communities of color were handling about ninety five percent, you know, of another kind of waste stream, and this would have brought even more to us. Which is incredible. And yeah, exactly. And the fact that you know, had we not found out about it completely by accident, you know, mm. um, it would have been like, oh, you know, this it could have we could have had that on our waterfront right to this day, but um, we but I but for me, I just got politicized. You know, I realized, wait a second, it's not because, you know, poor people are inherently just poor and they don't care or anything like that. It's like our communities are built this way so that, you know, the, our policymakers can just designate, you know, this particular area in the South Bronx and in other parts of Brooklyn, Southeast Queens, as places where you can put the most noxious uses because it's politically most expedient. Right. You know, poor people aren't going to complain. They don't know any better. And, you know, we realized that if we didn't start that no one was going to come in to help us. Right. We had to start from our own. I mean, you've you've said in other interviews that people were very demoralized and dejected and that you mm-hmm. you really had to work just to get them mobilized about this. And I mean, it seems to me in a way you had to make them hopeful, but before that you almost maybe had to make them angry. <laughs> yeah. Well, how, did, yes. how did you do that? Or, I mean, how did that work? 
Really, all we had to – it was really – it's very true. I mean, to hear people say, of course, you know, if you tell them like this, this 5,200 ton per day waste facility is coming to the waterfront, and to hear people say, well, of course it's going to come here. This is where all the kind of crap comes. Right, and what can you do against you know? something like that, that machinery? And you, you figure out where, where folks are. And, you know, we realize, okay, we've got one of the country's highest asthma rates here. You know, we – Parents are taking their kids, you know, into the emergency rooms a couple times a week sometimes, you know, just to like open up their their tubes. And it's just like, oh, my God. So we help people make the connection between their health and especially their children's health and all of the facilities that were already located in the community and just said – we are adding insult to injury if we don't step up and, and you know, publicly discount this this proposal. And little by little, it grew, you know, into this groundswell of, um, you know, of support for like, this is our community. You know, we want better for ourselves. And little by little, that's what happened. And I remember one of the most amazing moments of my life, and literally I backed into the room so I didn't even know it was happening. Um, <laughs> we had our last public hearing that we could, have, we could have had, you know, to tell the state and the city that we could not tolerate this. And I backed into the room because I was talking to somebody, and I turned around, and it was my old junior high school auditorium with 700 seats, and they were all filled mm. with people from my neighborhood. <laughs> and I was like, and I just cried <laughs> like right there and and we kept the you know we kept the the administrative law judge there until 12 midnight and the only reason why they stopped was because the court record reporter ran out of paper <laughs> that was it. and everybody is saying no this is not what we want and so they had to take that into consideration we beat that facility uh-huh. so we're really proud of that yeah and was it out of that that you created sustainable south bronx this it was definitely w- the genesis of it because you know at that point, we were, you know, we were really vocal about what we didn't want, but we weren't necessarily all that vocal about what we wanted. Mm. And I think for me, it was like you, you can't just be against something. You got to be for something. And I, I was working, again, at this arts organization. What I wanted to do was like, you know, listen to what people you know, had already identified. It was also a part of this process was doing, you know, public visioning sessions to let people know, you know, what kind of things do you want in the neighborhood? And themes kept getting produced. You know, they wanted things like clean air. You know, they wanted, um, you know, better transportation so that, you know, truck traffic wasn't, you know, running their kids over all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted jobs that didn't, uh, that weren't toxic either to them or to the environment. And they wanted open space. They wanted waterfront access. And I thought, how cool would it be, you know, to start an organization that spoke specifically to these issues that people have already identified as things that they wanted to see in their own community? And that's when I started thinking about that's what I want to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it did speak to that creative part of me, which is like, you know, I kind of like, you know, working with a, a canvas that's, you know, that needs a little bit of work. <laughs> and um, and I also was inspired by so many other examples that I've seen around the world, you know, whether it's, you know, Emscher Park in, in, in Germany, you know, where it was like basically a huge brownfield where rivers were used as open sewers. And they were able to transform many of these areas, you know, Bogota, Colombia, um, just amazing places where, They've been able to, like, use the land in a way that actually supports, you know, human development. Hmm. And I think we haven't necessarily done that very well, you know, in this country and and unfortunately not in New York City. So did you just start reading and finding out about these places? And I was really fortunate because I had a chance to actually visit a few of them. Hmm. And, um, you know, and just seeing, like, how, you know, you can take a piece of contaminated land and, you know, through technology, to te- excuse me, take a piece of contaminated land and through technology and, of course, political will, 
you know, transform it into something that actually served a public good. Hmm. And I thought, why aren't we doing this kind of stuff here? And um, but again, it, it is about political will and much part and so much of my work, you know, is about being, you know, an advocate and helping, you know, whether it's our administrators or or um, and our general public, of course, you know, understand like the importance, you know, of creating a more sustainable and holistic future, um, whether the future is tomorrow or whether it's, you know, for, you know, for the next generation. Um, you know, it's really exciting, but really, really hard. <laughs> right, right. Well, talk about at that. Talk about what's hard. What what has been hard? little bit. Um, do you want a specific or do you yeah, want... Yeah, sure. Um, okay. Yeah, like the last couple, two days have been really difficult. Um, just on Monday afternoon, I, you know, stood with the mayor and talked about, you know, and, and where the the master plan for the South Bronx Greenway, you know, which is a, a, a proposal that I wrote, you know, to bring uh, one, one and a quarter million dollars worth of uh, planning money into the neighborhood. And it was this, it is this was your first project, You're, pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Greenway. So project. I wrote the mm-hmm. wrote the proposal, and it's going des- it, to it designed uh, you know um, waterfront esplanades as well as on street bike dedicated on street bike networks, you know, connecting you know all these communities, you know, within the South Bronx. And so it was really exciting. And so we stood with the mayor, you know, talking about how wonderful this this project is because we got thirty million dollars for, um, you know, for. Uh, uh, the first stage of, of the projects to be built starting next year, and we were, uh, and it was so exciting. But then the next night, I had to go to a public hearing about the 2,000 bed prison, excuse me, 2,000 bed jail that the city wants to build not that far away from it. Oh. And, you know, and for where the city's coming from, it's like, you know, they have to do it because, you know, we just have to, we, we need, you know, you know, better capacity. And there's all like so- lots of stupid reasons, you know, why they're saying it. But ultimately, for me, it looked as though they were building a market for prisons. You know, the fact that there were $375 million, you know, being, you know, funneled mm, to this jail? prison project. Oh, yeah. And um, only $30 million going to a positive use, you know, in the community that can, you know, support, you know, local economic development and entrepreneurial act- activities, you know, that actually can provide, you know, some meaningful jobs for folks and, you know, actually provides opportunities for the community, for community pride to be supported because you're building something really beautiful mm-hmm. and then to have a project that's, you know, getting 12 times the funding, you know, to imprison, you know, young black and Latino men and women. Hmm. And and I thought, you know, if we spent that much on our education system, if we spent that much, you know, actually working on the environment, if we spent that much actually supporting, you know, the lives of people, then would we really need those those jails? And so on one hand, you know, I do this this wonderful work and I see the fruits of my labor, but we still have to fight, you know, these battles and you know and the the problem is that I don't necessarily believe that the city like understands the irony, you know, in, in right. all of this. Irony <laughs> and, um, is the word really. Yeah. And uh it's like you're building a market for prisons. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you're pumping this kind of money in without really thinking about what what you're building. I mean, you're telling this community on one hand, you know, that, yeah, yeah, we're building these nice little parks for you, but, you know, we're spending a lot more to imprison your butts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, so our idea of sustainability is like actually working to create a whole community, you know, creating alternatives to incarceration, you know, creating opportunities for mm-hmm. employment. And uh, it's a difficult challenge, you know, that, that I have to face, mm-hmm. you know, every single day because, you know, it's not business as usual. 
what I'm trying to do. Hmm. And I think sometimes it, it freaks people out. <laughs> well, I, I would love to just talk through the the major projects you're working on, because it's been really fun for me on your website to read about them, and I, I think other people would like to hear you describe them. And I think that the, that the Greenway project was the first... Um, is that is it the biggest project you have going? Um, no, actually. Okay. All right. Well, then, <laughs> but then, it's <laughs> but it's a beautiful. But it really is a beautiful, beautiful project. I mean, it, yeah. the, I'm sorry. The you know it really grew out. You know the community's vision. You know for more parks and, and waterfront development in the area. You know paths that connect them to surrounding neighborhoods. You know, we have about twenty million dollars for the first phase projects mm-hmm. and. It's really exciting because, you know, we build these these street end parks like the one that it, the, the start of it was um, one that my dog helped me find, which is really amazing. Tell that story. Oh, OK. Yeah. So that's uh, a few years ago, like as we were battling this waste facility, um, I kept getting these uh, applications, you know, to apply for waterfront restoration, you know, uh, funding like seed grants. And I thought. Oh, that's really, really sweet. But these folks don't understand that you can't get to the waterfront from our neighborhood. And around the same time, I got a little crazy dog who took me jogging one day. And why couldn't into, you get? Why couldn't you get to the waterfront? Because there was oh, there was industry all over the waterfront, and you just you I mean you could see it on a map that we were a peninsula, but there was no way you could get to the water. Okay. And I uh, so she took me out one day and dragged me into what I thought was one of the many illegal uh, dumps that we had in the neighborhood, and. But what happened at you know behind the piles of garbage and weeds and just other disgusting things was the river, you know, the Bronx River was right there, and I was like, oh my god! But you really <laughs> didn't—you didn't know it was there. You didn't know you could get. I mean, to I it? knew it was there, but yeah. I—you couldn't get to it. Uh-huh. That's all I thought. Uh-huh. And um, thank you know, thank goodness for my dog <laughs> because she you know really she jump started my career actually. <laughs> <laughs> she gets the premium dog food. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and and so I mean so I mean what, that must have been an amazing moment though for you to have grown up there and suddenly discover that that the river was there that that it, it was part of the landscape. Oh, you had to be there. I mean at six o'clock in the morning, you know, and this, it was right after uh, sunrise and, and the sun was glinting off the water. And, you know, and if you didn't look behind you, you didn't see the piles of garbage behind you. And all I saw was this amazing possibility. I was like, this is the beginning. This is it. <laughs> and like, literally, I ran home and like, you know, wrote, rewrote, rewrote the proposal. And um, it, we were funded for that little seed grant. And we got ended up, it was only $10,000, but we ended up uh, leveraging that about 300 times over. Into a three million dollar park, which was just completed, just in time for my wedding. Actually, oh, I got married there. congratulations! Yeah, yeah it was. Oh, that's it a was. Great story. It was just so beautiful. I can't even tell you. <laughs> very fun. Mm. Very fun. So another thing you're working on are what are called green roofs. I'd never heard of this mm. or cool roof. <laughs> green and cool roofs. Yeah, yeah. there. It's a really interesting thing. It's the stuff they've been doing in in, in Germany for years, and. Um, Cool roofs are highly reflective surfaces that don't absorb uh, solar heat and pass it on to the environment. And green roofs materials are soil and living plants. Um, They're both used instead of petroleum-based roofs. Roofing materials, which degrade under the sun, and you actually breathe that stuff in. Mm. And they don't last as long either. And, um, And they also, neither one of them contribute to urban heat island, you know, effect either. Okay. And they also... They retain stormwater, so they don't dump them into the sewage treatment system, which incidentally are often in communities like the South Bronx. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they're 
you know, and, and they actually, <clears throat> and the coolest thing about them is that they actually attract uh, wildlife. And so when we first opened up ours, we were actually invaded by a little pack of butterflies the first day we put it up. It was very, very cute. Uh, very cute. So this and is, we, sometimes this will just be, I mean, it's, do you have one of these on your in your own house, a green yeah. roof? It's a, it well, could be a roof I, covered I, with plants. and Right. I have a cool roof on my house. Okay. Excuse me, but we built the city's first green and cool roof, community-led green and cool roof demonstration project on top of our offices. And that was to show that you can do this, you know, in an urban context and that you can do this also in a highly urban context such as the South Bronx as well. So it's really exciting. It's, hang on. Oh, um, we're just wondering if you have water. Take a drink. Oh, yes. You need to. Thank but you. also, don't worry. You know, this is not live, so if you have to clear your throat or start a sentence over, it's no big deal. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I, I understand that this has also happened in another city, a, a city that has embraced this in a, in a bigger way still is Chicago. Is that right? Oh, the green roof. yeah. Mm-hmm. They're our heroes. I mean, we look to them for all things green. Um, <laughs> and it's if we do, um, uh-huh. if we just wish that New York City would really take that, you know, as a... You know, as a as a model, as a working model. I mean, we do have. I'm sort of encouraged by the sustainability initi- initiative that this that New York City is taking on right now. But uh, I just think Chicago just does some amazing work. Is, is this also less expensive? Is it more expensive? How does it work economically? You know, right now, green roofs are definitely expensive. Um, you know, between, they start at pretty much twelve bucks, you know, or fifteen a square foot, which is three times, you know, what you can get a regular roof for. But but that's the thing. What I think Chicago's done is they've actually created lots of incentive programs, you know, to make it easier for people to do that. But also, it's like we're build, building markets for them. I mean, the same way we can build markets for prisons, you right, know, we need right. to build markets, right. you know, for the for green infrastructure as well. And unfortunately, that's actually starting to build and, and de- but democratizing, you know, sustainability. So it, it isn't this thing that only really wealthy people can afford. That's the real challenge. Mm. And that's why, you know, we do what we do. And it sounds like also um, these roofs that y- you do, th- you do think of... Um, cities, urban areas. I mean, I spent a summer in South Philadelphia. It's just mm-hmm. it's hot, hot, hot. And mm-hmm. it sounds like these roofs also don't trap heat in the same way. Yeah, I mean, so that exactly. is So that would be, in an urban area especially, a real improvement in quality of living for lots yes, of people. Yes, they admit that, that concept that you're talking about is called urban heat island. And it literally simply means that, that um, cities, you know, because of all the blacktop and the asphalt, you know, they actually retain heat, mm-hmm. you know, and then give it off at, at night, whereas surrounding countrysides have more um, vegetative surfaces and they don't. So they're, they're naturally cooler. They're cool down, so yeah. that Yeah, so the process of actually looking at ways to vegetate more of a city surface is simply a way, you know, of using a natural resource as a way to, to counteract that. So it makes a lot of sense. But, you know, again, <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, sorry, okay. go ahead. No, no, that's okay. I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> but again, it's it's so simple that it takes a while to get to get the <laughs> message across. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so you also have the Bronx Environmental Stewardship Training Program. Yes. Tell me about that. that. That is our ecological restoration job training program because what we wanted to do was help our community participate, you know, in the both personally, financially, you know, have a real stake, you know, in the ecological restoration, you know, of their neighborhood. And, um, you know, we knew that these things were happening, but we what we didn't know was how to make sure that our people were being, you know, 
put into these in these positions. So we started this training program as a way to train young people in the field of ecological restoration, some little brownfield remediation, um, so that they can get jobs in, in landscaping, park maintenance, um, you, you, and across a broad spectrum. And we've been doing the program since 2003, and we have we have like about a 90% success rate with about 80% of those people actually moving directly into the field of ecological restoration. Yeah. So, and, you know, and these are folks that, you know, some of them have actually never had a job. You know, we've had the South Bronx has one of the highest unemployment rates. We've got a 25% unemployment rate. You know, so teaching people whether they're just general life skills, you know, job readiness, and then also giving them tools so they can actually participate in this green collar, you know, workforce development that's actually happening around green the country. Green collar workforce, I love that. Yeah, is um is just really beautiful, and seeing people just grow uh, in that capacity is like you know they really start to understand you know their relationship to their own environment. You know, as they walk out their door, they recognize that they're a part of it, and it's really really very cool. Hmm. Yeah. And then you have the Sheridan Expressway discontinuation. <laughs> 1.25 miles of underutilized highway. And uh-huh. the way I understand it, you think if you can redirect that or get rid of it, it could have all kinds of positive impact on your community. Yeah, it's this relic, you know, of the Robert Moses era. Right. It was built with no regard, you know, for the communities that were divided by it or, you know, that literally sometimes just built on top of them. And, uh, you know, it really does go virtually unused. There's this great picture, you know, of a group of my colleagues sitting in the middle of the highway during rush hour. That's how little use it gets. And, <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was just hysterical. Not stopping traffic, but just... Not stopping traffic. No, not stopping traffic. It, there was so... It was like we actually were able to do a few poses before, like, one car came by. It was just retarded. It's like, yeah, you really need this, guys. Uh-huh. Sure you do. <laughs> and so we, we um, you know, up to craft, you know, along with, um, you know, our partners helped craft this really wonderful transportation plan that actually allowed for the removal of the highway so that the land could actually be used, you know, for community economic development or affordable housing or or even more open space. Right. And uh, it's 28 acres of land. I mean, mm. come on, that's in New York City. That's unbelievable. <laughs> right. And uh, but how? But you know, but now we're just like, how do we do this in a way so that we're not, you know, constantly trying to gentrify our own you know, community because that is also a problem. Right. I, I hear that. And now mm-hmm. I'm, you, you mentioned your partners and, you know, to kind of circle back to, to religion, I was mm-hmm. interested to, um, on the website, the, the, the partners are all listed there. It's a really interesting group, including Mothers on the Move um, uh-huh. and then something called Youth Ministries <laughs> for Peace and Justice. Um, uh-huh. Is that a religious group in the South Bronx or what? They're a nonprofit, mm-hmm. uh, but, and they're a partner on the Sheridan Expressway. They work with, youth, with uh, young people. Mm-hmm. And I want to, <clears throat> sorry, I want to ask you, I mean, do, do you, um, is there a religious presence in this, in these, these initiatives in, in the South Bronx? Are there religious groups, are churches involved, or synagogues, or, you know, whatever? It's interesting, because we've just started, um, you know, strategizing on help going out and doing even more outreach in our community and churches are you know definitely going to be a necessary part of that because you know when you when you think about you know other movements civil rights you know in particular yeah. you know so much of the power came from people you congregating you know at at churches and and using that spiritual you know support as a way to empower themselves you know it, 
Jesus was a revolutionary (laughs) and, um, you know, didn't do it for himself. He did it for others. So even building up that kind of spirit is something that, you know, I think that on some level we we weren't, um, you know, we didn't do that. It just didn't seem obvious at first. But now it's just like, wait a second. Hmm. You know, these people love, you know, each other and their communities as much as anyone else. I mean, for the love of God. I actually don't use that. I'm sorry. It's okay. I was like, how obnoxious is that? Um, speaking of faith, I'm like, of course they love each other. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> well, that's not always a given necessarily. That, that is that is true. Yeah. But um, you know, but it is you know we think you know a, a, an untapped you know resource because I truly do believe that the work we're doing you know is about you know producing you know spiritual wholeness mm-hmm. because I do not believe that you can have you know, consistent faith, you know, in your surroundings if you don't have it in yourself. And but I do but I think it also works, you know, in the you know, in the opposite as well. Like you you see you see what you see has an impact on what on how you feel about yourself. Right. And so for our you know, especially for our faith based, you know, um you know, community, you know, to become to be a part of this. I mean, it's it really is. I think it's a natural extension of what both of us do. Mm-hmm. And I'm just willing, I'm really excited about the opportunities to offer that up. You know what, really, <clears throat> one thing that just strikes me um, dramatically about your story and what you're doing is in the larger culture, people are waking up to the environment and to ecology by way of what's being presented to us as an impending crisis. You know, mm-hmm. people are saying climate change is terrifying. And so maybe I need to look at what I can do in my life or my community. Mm-hmm. It seems to me in your community, um, people in that community lived with an ecological catastrophe for years. Yes. And, and, had, and had begun to experience that as normal. Yes. And you are waking there, you and others around you are waking up to the environment by way of making it better. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a wonderful contrast, actually. Yeah. And making it better, like for the here and now and also in the future. Uh-huh. You know, I think that, but, and, and also, like one of, another one of the projects we're working on right now, um, it's a, uh, it's, it, it's called a recycling, a, recycling industrial park. And um, all it is, it's a collection of businesses that process and use recycled materials. Okay. And we handle so much of the city's recyclable materials you know, within our community as, as and in our neighborhood that it's not even funny, but it produces a lot of truck traffic. It's almost entirely truck based. And so we're like, oh, wait a second, why aren't we looking at recycled materials as raw material? You know, because you can, and there's lots of precedent out there to show that that's the case. Right. And also, you can barge this stuff out, you know, by water and use rail access. So we found a site that would accommodate this, and it could produce between three to five hundred jobs. You know, we're we're hoping, and we're doing a feasibility study on it right now. Reduce the amount of truck traffic, and also would allow for our greenway, you know, to be developed right. you know, through that area as well. And so, we understand that if we're going to be a part, you know, of the solution, we have to engage the problems like like uh waste material isn't going away why aren't we using it and turning it to something but else it's the problems that are right in front of you mm-hmm. right yeah. i mean you are you are all contributing to whatever all of us have to do to um minimize the effects of climate change if that's what we're, what we're up against but absolutely but, but what you're doing it by working on as you say the here and now i mean very mm-hmm. practical parts well, it, of life it's, it's practical but and it's and uh you know, it also serves a regional 
purpose. Yes. You know, it's like, yes, we're working on this because, you know what, as a, as a 60,000 diesel truck trips, you know, that, that come through our neighborhood, yeah, it has a direct impact on our health. But we understand the impact that that also has on climate change. So we're dealing with it from both levels, because we know that if we can deal with it for us right now, that ultimately it's also going to have an impact, you know, for the the earth as a whole. And, um, you know, because we recognize that every, we've got to, like, reduce these greenhouse gases, but guess what? We've got them right now. Right. So for, it is about, you know, helping ourselves and helping others at the same time. And you're kind of famous for standing up to Al Gore, <laughs> for being um, an environmentalist who... Um, is that you've you've challenged him? I mean, tell me about that and and how you how you relate to what we might call the official environmental movement, at least as most people know it. <laughs> um, first of all, I, being born a poor black girl, you know, from the ghetto, I never forget who I am, ever, and I will always be that until the day I die. And, uh, you know, and that brings with it, you know, a whole, <laughs> you know, wealth of, of, you know, stuff that goes with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, environmentalism was also often considered something that, you know, rich white people could do. This was the privilege that they had. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I was initially snubbed by Gore, you know, in the hallway, you know, before he knew that I was going to speak. And where know, was that? This was at, at, we were both invited to speak at a conference called TED. And, uh, you know, it was amazing. You know, they get 50 thought leaders from around the, the world. So everybody at this conference is pretty special, frankly, right. <laughs> on some level. Right. And uh, but, um, you know, I just I think like many, you know, big environmentalists, you know, don't necessarily see, you know, or just assumed, you know, that it, it couldn't be that real, you know, what we were doing. And it was just, you know, and it's just the way society works. Like you just discount what you don't necessarily see as as as, as value, as valued rather. And, um, you know, but there I was you know, in a position that I knew, you know, most environmental justice activists were not going to be in. <laughs> so and so for me to get up on that stage, you know, and just be able to say, like, I was making you an offer mm. was not so much for him. It was for me because mm-hmm. I knew that if I didn't get up there and say it, I knew that I would have been letting down a whole slew of people that weren't gonna, that probably were not going to have that chance to get up there and say something like that mm-hmm. on behalf of the work that we do. So, Are there bridges being built now between the work, kind of work you're doing locally and those kinds of official environmentalists? <laughs> <laughs> Are people in your neighborhood watching An Inconvenient Truth? Now they won't even show it in neighborhoods like ours, hmm. and I think that is part of the problem. You know that there is it's, you know it's a it's a fantastic film, and I'm really glad it's getting the attention that it's getting. But you know again, there still is this disconnect. You know between, you know what's considered like official environmentalism or what yeah. I call official environmentalism, what they think is called that, and um, you know what actually happens to real life people. You know on the ground that can't afford a Prius, and uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, no, you know, but that's the way it goes. And, uh, you know, it, it, there is a still a bit of a disconnect, and that's why one of the things that we're trying to do is actually help bridge that, you know, distance so that folks in our own communities, like, understand, you know, our global impact, like, mm-hmm. wh- why it's so important, you know, for, 
excuse me, why it's so important for them, you know, as a community, you know, to be an environmentally healthy and safe community and what that means, you know, in global terms, you know, as well. Like this, what's happening in our communities does impact the rest of the world, does impact definitely the rest of New York City, right. whether or not, you know, the city wants to, you know, really no, sensuously not. understand that. Um, and uh, that's just the way that we're working right now. But it's it's exciting. So, you know, I was talking to um, Cal DeWitt yesterday. Do you know him? He's an, he's, um, he's an evangelical Christian. He's a scientist. He's been working on this for 40 years in rural, oh, yeah, rural yeah, yeah. Wisconsin. Yes, I have heard of you know, him. So he's mm-hmm. been on the ground in, a, in another way, in another place, you know, doing this mm-hmm. long before it was fashionable. Right. And, um, and what he's been doing the last years is building bridges between the science of of the environment and climate change and mm-hmm. conservative evangelical um, religious people. And he talks about um, the, you know, the importance of, a, of building new vocabularies that speak mm-hmm. to different new people, again, outside right. this kind of official movement, which hasn't reached everyone right. or even spoken to everyone. So I wonder about vocabulary and you and your work and your community. You know, are there words that that we associate with this, with environmentalism that don't work in your community? And are there words or ideas or images that that are really powerful for you that you want to, you know, inject into mm-hmm. the movement mm-hmm. or into people's imagination about this? Yeah. Oh, so many. Um, but it, for us, it's more about concepts and what really resonates to people. Yeah. Like for, you know, again, if you're talking about a really poor community, of color, you know, that has a 25% unemployment rate, you know, and kids are getting sick with asthma. That's what people are going to be concerned about. So we had to make sure that as we were building our projects, that we spoke to those needs and then would add um, environmentalism onto it. Because quite frankly, it was the more important thing were like the things that they were dealing with right then and there. So this this recycling industrial park project that I told you about um, a little bit earlier, you know, not a typical neighborhood beautification project, you know, mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. But to again, but to people, you know, where you've got a twenty five percent unemployment rate, you know, one in four kids have asthma, you know, those jobs are an incredible vision of beauty and what and, and environmental and all those all the kind of things that make a healthy community a community. Now the problem is right now that that two thousand bed prison that I was talking to you about earlier, mm. that's where they want to build. We want to build our, um, our recycling center on that same site. Mm. So we're kind of struggling with so that you're, right now. So you're talking about – you're not talking about environmentalism. You're talking about asthma. You're talking about mm-hmm. jobs. You're talking about yeah. obesity when you talk mm-hmm. about the Greenway Project, giving yep. kids places to run and play exactly. and people places to walk. So you've, We're talking about crime reduction, you uh-huh. know, because the more people, you know, out on the street in a community doing positive things like going for a run, you know, means that the less negative things, you know, like robbing <laughs> people actually happens. Right. You know, those are the things. And we're changing our language to meet the needs of the people that are there because they are different. You know, it's like if you're not driving to a mall, if you if like 75 percent of the people in your community don't even own a car – why are we talking to them, you know, about cafe standards? It's like they don't really care. Right, right. Um, so or buying there a Prius. Are lots, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, give me a break. So this is great. I mean, this is taking me back to a place we started when you just talked about sustainability and how for you it's about seeing the whole. And I mean, this is giving detail and structure to what that whole mm-hmm. means for people in their right. in their everyday lives and their families. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's how, right. That's how you 
build an army, you know, of support. That's how you build, you know, people taking you know, personal interest, you know, in this stuff, because you do have to make it relevant. Like, it's not this pie in the sky thing. It's, it's you know, believe me, I think that the rainforest in Brazil should be protected. But it's too far, you know, from, you know, the general daily lives of, of so many people, especially poor people living in, in their communities, whether they're living in the Rust Belt, you know, whether they're living in, you know, New Orleans right now, uh, whether they're living in the South Bronx, you know, it's like you've got to meet people where they are and help make their environment something that actually nurtures them. I mean, that's why our ecological restoration job training program, I think, is such a success because people start to see the connections between what they actually do you know, to support the environment, whether it's the river, you know, six blocks away from their house or whether it's, you know, taking, you know, doing other landscaping, you know, anywhere else in the city. They see how their how the fruits of their labor actually give back. And that's what's so important, you know, with any of this. That's why this recycling center, you know, is, was such a big deal for us and why, you know, the putting a prison on the same site yeah. was just so, so troubling. I, I, it boggles my mind. And, you know, where do you draw... Your, how do you think about your inner resources? Where does your courage come from? Where does your gumption come from? And you know, how do you not lose hope um, when you're faced with something like a three hundred and seventy-five million dollar prison plan? <laughs> I mean, do you think about this? What do you, what do you go, what do you fall back on that keeps you going? I give myself five minutes to cry, and then I just have to get up again. I mean, because I consider myself so fortunate. So fortunate that I actually have, you know, that I can do this for a living. Like, you have no idea how cool it is for me, you know, to get up in the morning and to go, okay, yeah, I know it's going to be really hard and, you know, it's going to be a battle. But you know what? I actually have the capacity to do this. Like, I, this is my job that I built so that I can support my community. Mm -hmm. I mean, these people are me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I am them. And I know it. And... And for to be like a representative voice, you know, for folks that have a lot of other stuff on their mind. Oh, my gosh. Like it's I you have I do feel blessed and mm-hmm. I know I am. Hmm. Well, you know, I think that's probably your last word. I want I wanted to ask you, you mentioned earlier on that you you'd learned about West African ideas about the land and uh-huh. place. Yeah. And thought, tell me about that. Or, and tell me about that and, you know, anything else. Are there other images and vocabulary and resources that also have, you know, that kind of build you up or expand your imagination about this as you move along? Yeah, there are uh, West African traditions and, uh, and religions that actually speak to, you know, your role, you know, as an active part of your environment. Like everything around you, whether it's, you know, the iron that you use, you know, um, you know, to make a tool, you know, whether it's, you know, the uh, uh, the tree that you carve a drum out of, you know, you are intimately, you know, associated with it. You know, it's a part of you as you help craft it, as you use it. And um, it's just an amazingly beautiful way of looking at the world and looking at other people around you because you're all there's like this this beautiful bond that connects everybody and you can you yourself are responsible for how you treat those bonds. You know, you can... I heard uh, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu say the other day um, that, uh, you know, a knife, you know, it's just a knife. You know, if you use it to cut bread, it's a good thing. Hmm. If you use it and shove it into somebody, it's not such a good thing. 
And it's like, and it, but it's that power that you have and how you use the tools that are given to you. If you use your power you know, to support people around you, you know, to help them find their own voice, to make their lives easier, to support your own development you know, in that process, or if you use that, that power you know, to destroy, to tear down, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And so the building those connections and understanding that you ultimately have to nurture them you know, as an active member, you know, of the environment is one of the most compelling things, you know, that I've, that I've learned. And uh, it's just something that I want to continue to build on in mm-hmm. my life. Mm-hmm. I, I still, you know, though, I also just think it's fascinating to think about you translating those ideas um, from, from a wild, lush, natural landscape um, open landscape, a lot of it, to you know, to the South Bronx, to an to an American urban area that, when you were growing up just a few decades ago, was just in decay, and as yeah. you say, in flames. Yep, yep, in flames. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> Gosh, yeah. I just I want to just uh, because it, the image just sort of popped up in my head when I was uh, my one of my earliest memories. I was about seven or eight. At the beginning of the summer, you know, I watched the two buildings, you know, at either end of my house burn down. And then at the end of the summer, my brother was killed, you know, as a result of a drug war. Hmm. And uh, I just remember thinking, I got to get out of here. Wow. And now I'm back. (laughs) 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 Yeah. 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 This is yeah. great. I hang on. I'm just getting a message from behind the glass. Oh, okay, okay, all right. We're um, we have to get out of here in a couple of minutes, and they wanted me okay. to ask you. They said when you told the story about meeting Al Gore in the hallway, mm-hmm. um, it could you tell this? It, it wasn't quite clear what had happened. Um, oh, okay. okay. So just just that basic. <laughs> it's such a horrible story. Yeah, it so really you, is. <laughs> no, just, I'll just tell a it. Tiny. Don't 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 spend too much time. I don't want you to. Okay. Be upset. Relive it. No, don't relive it. <laughs> okay, I'll just I'll do the yeah. I will. Yeah. I'll leave the really gross parts. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Outside, but. Uh, I went up to him. I wasn't called on, you know, during this this smaller session uh, that that I went to at the conference, and and so I went up to him after we were after the end of it. You know, you sit and talk to other folks at the end, and so I went and said and I said, "Oh, you know, how are grassroots and envi- in particular environmental justice activists going to be involved in this new um, you know marketing initiative that you're doing around an inconvenient truth? I think it's going to be amazing." And he was like, "Oh, you know, we've got a grant program." And, and I'm like, uh, he didn't hear me. <laughs> he, didn't en- he didn't engage. Right. So, I, so I kept going. And I said, well, um, oh, no, no, I don't think you understood. You know, how are we actually going to be involved? You know, because I think we can, this is going to be kind of great. And I'm really looking forward to this. And he said, well, you know, I actually, you know, I'll write the definition for environmental justice. And I'm thinking, oh. he really doesn't hear me. Hmm. And and at that point, you know, I left and, you know, found a bathroom and cried <laughs> because I was like, Jesus Christ. I mean, here's like, you know, a huge voice, you know, for climate change and environmentalism. And he doesn't want us. Right. 
Well, I'm glad <laughs> Not we interested. had you tell that. <laughs> this yeah. has been so wonderful talking to you. And did you hear the show we did with Joe Carter on the spiritual? No, I want to send did. you that because oh, that'd be great. he talked. This is just it's a, he's a he's a singer. He actually just died last year. But huh. anyway, he was grandchildren of grandchild of slaves, and he went back and figured out how that music was written, and also about how African spirituality entered into mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Christianity and into that music. And I don't know. I just I think you might like that show. It's wow, it's a cool. beautiful show, and um, I I I'm really glad you're out there doing what you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, we will uh, let you know. It's I think I don't think we're going to produce this until after the first of the year. Um, okay. But we're going to produce it after the first of the year, and I'm really excited about this show. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It was really nice to talk with you. And yeah. Well, you're doing such cool work. Yeah. Thank you. You too. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. All right. Okay. Bye bye. Take care. Yeah. Bye bye.